Welcome to the end of another working week. Here's the next instalment of the pod that promises to inspire, provoke, and amuse. I'm Laura Jane Flutrani, and this is Careers Talk. We have a packed pod this week with a brand new feature, Just the Job. Each week, we'll be selecting the most intriguing role to have appeared on Guardian Jobs and telling you lucky people all about it. You never know, it could be just the job for you. To start us off, one of our colleagues, Charlie Vincent, will be along later to reveal which job has made it this week. And I think I heard a rumour it's something to do with the circus. Pick the poster this week is intern Kate's choice. She's chosen a graduate looking for a way into museums. And judging from what the poster has been advised on the forum so far, this seems to be a very difficult, closed, it's who you know, not what you know type of affair. Some days it is incredibly demoralising and kind of soul-destroying with sometimes your only companion is daytime TV. Then I will be welcoming my guest in the studio this week, which I am very excited about because it's the lovely Julian Lindley, the very funny Julian Lindley, ex-editor of Heat and now creative director at Bauer. At school, I wasn't desperately academically bright. I was much more interested in the sort of the different gangs and how they kind of interacted at school and the gossip that would fly between them. We'll also be hearing about an interesting careers event happening at the end of November on diversity in the workplace from Mark Palmer Edgecombe, who has the most amazing job, by the way, spending half of his time in London and half in Buenos Aires. But first, Kerry is going to tell us about the Q&A we had yesterday on working in international development, which, for some reason, is a career choice we get asked a lot about. Hi, Kerry. Hiya. Yeah, it is a popular discussion topic. I think mainly because it's got so much scope in it, it can take in governance and healthcare, education, gender equality, human rights, environmental issues, you know, there's a lot, so... And it's also very tough to get into. So tell us about who who was on the panel. We had Catherine Tubb, who runs International Development Volunteer Agency, Two-Way Development. We had Justine Tordoff, who's HR Director at Red R, which provides training for experienced relief workers and those trying to enter the humanitarian sector. We had Nicholas Spur, who's a communications officer at Article 19, which is an NGO campaigning for freedom of expression and human rights. And another one we had, this is just a small selection of a lot of good people, we had Catherine Rayner, who's head of media and information at VSO, the volunteering charity. So give us a flavour of the, the types of discussion and the advice given. Okay, so as I mentioned, it's a highly competitive sector. It's an exciting image, so there are far more applicants than there are opportunities. And um, the candidates are of a really high quality, so if you want to improve your chances, you really need to work at making yourself uh, an all-rounder, but with specific skills too. Um, I've picked a post out which sort of represents this, and this is uh, from Chloe Reeves, and she attended an international development conference, and after that she decided she wanted to leave her job in adult social services policy to work for an NGO in international development. She's happy to start in an admin role, take a pay cut. She also feels that she's got great transferable skills and experience, but she hasn't heard back for a single interview. And she feels this because she hasn't got specific knowledge of international development and hasn't done any volunteering or internships, which 
which she can't afford to do. And what, what did they say to her? Because, you know, it, it does seem that if you've got the money, you can get the experience. Well, yeah. One of our panellists would say it can be quite elitist because you can't get in, really, unless you've been abroad, volunteered somewhere, done an internship. But they had some suggestions for Chloe Reeves and they suggested that she honed down her skills and tried to develop a specialism because the demand is for people who can do things like fundraising, communications. There's also bigger agencies that need people with specific regional knowledge or thematic knowledge. So nurses or nutritionists, for example. They also recommended VSO, which you can join up, volunteer internationally. And uh, you don't get paid, but you don't have to pay for it. So your flights, visa, accommodation are covered and you get a living allowance as well. So any more top tips? Yes, loads actually, but I've managed to narrow it down. Um, The first one we covered a little bit, just volunteering is essential, Um, not only to gain experience, but to prove that you you care about the cause, that you have a knowledge of it and that you're committed to it. And it's international development after all, so you really need to spend some time abroad and get to grips with those sort of issues. Languages will improve your chances massively. Some professionals in international development have mastered three languages. Wow. Not rare at all. You know, that's the standard. What kind of languages? Spanish, I suppose. Well, mainly the UN languages. So, yeah, Spanish, French, Arabic and Portuguese that can be used in multiple local settings. And what about fundraising? Is that a good thing to do to get some experience? Fundraising is actually where they're seeing more jobs come up than programme management's quite popular and the admin roles are really popular, but communications and fundraising, there are more roles advertised for that. I ask because we're running an event in careers, so shall I tell you about it? Yes, please. The careers event is going to be on fundraising on November the 11th and you can sign up online. I'll put all the details on the website and it's a really good opportunity we've got a panel of people that you'll be able to quiz about your career and bring your CVs and maybe even get yourself a job sounds good doesn't it it sounds brilliant and lastly Kerry I was very rude and didn't even ask you how you are and did you have a nice week I had a lovely week the forums have been very buzzing this week I've enjoyed it good thanks very much Joining us in the studio now is Julian Lindley, ex-editor of Heat and now creative director for lifestyle and entertainment at Bauer, a role created specifically for him. From sugar to more, heat to heatworld.com, Julian now finds himself at the creative helm of one of the biggest publishing houses of popular content in the world. Welcome, Julian. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks very much for coming in. Uh, So I wanted to ask about something that you've been quoted saying, cut me in half and inside you can read heat. Yes. And I'd like you to walk me through the steps that's taken you from the countryside of the Cotswolds to the glitz and glamour of heat. Well, I suppose it was never my intention to become a journalist. I was just always very interested in people. So at school, I wasn't desperately academically bright. I was much more interested in the sort of the different gangs and how they kind of interacted at school and the gossip that would fly between them. That was what I found much more interesting than sitting in the classroom. And so then when I got to university, that was just a bigger extension of that. But, you know, drama was heightened because everyone was leading adult lives. So when I first left university, I saw a job ad for a magazine called Sugar, a brand new launch. Uh, It's still around now, but it was a really big teenage magazine, sort of about 10, 15 years ago. And the job ad said, this was in The Guardian, Jobad said, um, do you know the difference between Ren and Stimpy? Who's the secret hot one in Take That? 
And why did Angel dump Shane in Home and Away? And you knew all the answers. I knew all the answers. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, stuff this. I'm going to apply for it. <laughs> well, I didn't even write a proper letter. I made a collage because I couldn't think how else to get their attention. And I'm not joking either. I really did that. What did you include in your collage? I just cut up loads of old magazines and stuck on things that I liked and was interested in. Like a mood board. Like a mood board. <laughs> I sent them a mood board rather than a CV. So in a way, that's how I sort of slipped into journalism. You know, I was just interested. And I think that that's perhaps why I was so successful at that type of journalism, because I just had this natural enthusiasm and interest for it. Whereas it had never been a big ambition of mine to go and be a reporter in a war zone or in report on parliament or anything along those lines. Politics, yeah, politics. Yeah, it just, it just was... Um, it, was not, it wasn't something I was naturally interested in, whereas I was madly interested in television, in pop music, and always interested in people and the way they interacted with each other. So when Heat came along, uh, which was sort of about six years into my career, it was like this dream job that had been created for me. You guys probably don't remember, but it was launched as a gender-neutral entertainment magazine. Right. So 50% men, 50% women, the kind of idea being like an entertainment weekly title in the States. And it flopped dramatically, you know, it really um, didn't take off. And so when Ian Birch, who was the then creative director of the company, pulled me aside and said, I think you should move to Heat, I thought I was being constructively dismissed from the company because everyone said it was going to fold. All right. Um, and so in it's my... kiss of death. It was the kiss of death. So in my interview, I tried to sabotage it by saying <laughs> the opposite of what I thought they'd want to hear. So when they said, you know, what do you want in here? I said, well, I'll put loads of dresses in it. I would put loads of makeup and I would do lots of gossip about the Spice Girls. You know, and I kind of said, and because that was what I was interested in, but what I didn't think they wanted to hear, little did I know that was also their plan. Yeah. So um, There was no getting away. There was no getting away, then I was trapped. Yeah. <laughs> but funnily enough, my first day, it was just like a dream come true. I just couldn't quite believe that I was the featured editor of Heat. So from Sugar, were you editor? Or did you no, edit? um, so I started off as junior writer at Sugar. I worked my way up to special projects editor, so I was producing a lot of one-shot magazines, real-life specials, uh, hunk specials, makeup <laughs> specials. I actually wrote an entire booklet once on periods. Can you Did believe you? that? Yes. <laughs> Probably know more than we do. You need to eat a lot of bananas. Oh, really? Um, that's the one I fact that I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it's got something to do with the... What? Potassium? Uh, potassium. But what is, oh, I suppose it's... Okay, let's. What does we, that do? Though? I don't know. I don't. I don't think we should go yeah, any further that. in discussing that because <laughs> fascinated now. We might show our ignorance completely. Yeah. Um, so when I finished at Sugar, I then uh, and that was under the editorship of Joe Alvin. She took me to a launch called. She B gave Magazine. you your job, didn't she? She gave me my first job. Yeah. In fact, can I tell a story about that? Because it's quite funny. Yeah. Do. Uh, when I turned up for my interview at Sugar, I mean, I was completely bloody clueless. I turned up in a pair of trainers and a T-shirt and a pair of jeans. And uh, Jo Alvin, who's, you know, she's now the editor of Glamour. She's a very big, powerful journalist. And even back then, she was quite a kind of force to be reckoned with. And I was sat in this office uh, waiting for her to turn up. And she kind of came flouncing into the room and she like dumped her diary down on the table with a big thud. And then she sat down in this chair. But the middle of the chair fell through <laughs> as she sat down and it was one of those metal frame chairs. So she got jammed in it with her, literally the skirt on, her bum was on the floor and her arms were literally <laughs> caught over the top of the arms of the chair and I could see her knickers. Oh! <laughs> and, li- and she said, oh my God, I'm going to have to give you the bloody job oh, now, really? aren't I? <laughs> 
Oh, so, my. Yeah. Does she know that you tell that story? Oh, I have told this story. Oh, no, this okay. is one of my dinner party okay, stories. Okay, fine. <laughs> so, um, so uh, I went from sugar to B. Yeah. Uh, then when I was at B, I moved to Moore magazine, which was fortnightly then. And it was while I was at uh, Moore that I got this approach to go and work on heat. It was a time of my life. I absolutely loved it. Give us a flavour of uh, what, what, what it was like. It's moments like when we were working on the final of Big Brother in year two. And then in the ad break, my f- mobile rings and it was Davina McCall saying, OK, Julian, Brian is about to come out of the house in a minute. You need to tell me what I have to ask him. So exciting. And I was just like, I can't believe Davina McCall's yeah. phoning me to ask me what to ask Brian Dowling. Yeah. This is like amazing. Yeah. I bet uh, your heart was going. My heart was going. And then it was just so thrilling 10 minutes later to see Davina asking my question yeah. to Brian. It yeah. just, it was, I mean, I just felt so honoured. I just... You know, I couldn't quite believe that it was happening, really. When I was deputy editor, I also organised a couple of events with an HIV charity called Crusade, which Madonna is a patron of. And uh, we organised these two massive events uh, where we auctioned off celebrities' belongings to a celebrity audience. I managed to get Hearsay, did their first ever live performance at it. It was a bit hokey, really, because they were just in the Hilton Hotel or somewhere like that on a really small stage doing this big old dance routine. And I was sort of stood at the side, biting my fist, going, I can't believe I made this happen. This is ridiculous. (laughs) And we uh, bought enough alcohol to kill everyone that came. So we fed everyone champagne and tequila. And it's champagne and tequila. Champagne and tequila. Jesus. So everyone was off their faces. <laughs> so Sarah Cox the next morning yeah. on, on her Radio breakfast One. show yeah. was literally saying, I can't believe I bought the fluffy trousers from Billy Elliot for £20,000 <laughs> or whatever it was she paid because she'd been so hammered yeah. that she just couldn't stop bidding. Good tactic. It was a very good tactic. Yeah. And, it, and also it, there's that really famous shot of Jordan rolling around on the floor really drunk brilliantly in front of a heat branded board at the event so it's kind of having opportunities to do things like that when I had never had the experience of doing them before I just found really thrilling. Mm. So I wanted to talk to you about uh, the way that you described yourself at school that you were the kid on the on the bus doing their homework last minute and I wanted to ask is that because you procrastinate or that you find the thrill of trying to achieve something at last minute the the pressure what is that what drives you? I don't like working in that way. You know, it's not very good for you, but I can't operate unless I've got a gun to my head, unless there's that real sort of, you know, uh, deadline happening in an hour. And it's where I churn out some of my best work. Was there anything that you were engaged with at school, academically? Academically, I loved English. But weirdly, I was really bad at it as well. (laughs) I'm not academic. You know, it takes me a long time to get my head around things. On my mock GCSE exam, we were given a poem... (laughs) to analyse and it was about a snowman was a metaphor I didn't get what metaphors were but it was a metaphor for a boy whose mother was dying and the snowman was kind melting. of melting I in front I of his eyes I think I know that poem so we had to analyse this poem so what I wrote was this is about a snowman it is melting the boy is very sad <laughs> I mean I could always write and then when I started at Sugar all I did for the first year really was write all the captions and then eventually I got put in charge of writing real life stories and that was when, God, I really learned how to write then. You can, you, know. can you remember what your first one was? Oh God, I, I can't, I just always remember there was always the, as I stared at the blob of ketchup on the kitchen table, I knew my life had changed forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I really remember. I wrote that line several times. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so. Yeah, um, you know, the ketchup moment. The ketchup moment. Yeah. Well, the one that really sticks in my mind though was I'd seen a documentary on Channel 4 about a teenage 
boy who was trapped in the girl's body, gender dysmorphia. He was only sort of 13 or 14 and his mum wanted him to have hormone treatment to stop the onset of puberty and she was really having to fight for it, which is why she decided to do the documentary. And so I wrote a letter to them through the production company and they said that they'd had hundreds of letters from all newspapers and magazines but they only responded to mine because I was the only person that actually referred to him as a boy and not a girl. And I went down and spent a couple of days with them doing an interview and a photo shoot and was completely convinced that this was a boy that I was talking to. And it really um, meant something to me to be able to tell his story Mm. in a way that he wanted to tell it and not in a way that the press wanted to tell it. And we got a lot of great feedback for it. And so that, that story stuck with me. Because I really connected with family yeah. and... And, um, and it sort of transcended the writing, really, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it became more than just story. that. Yeah. They asked me to write a book for them afterwards, actually. But I I mean, God, the thought of actually writing thousands of words on one subject, oh, I don't think, I'd, really I, don't think I could do it? it. When everyone says they've got a book in them, I haven't. No. I really don't have a book in me. Maybe a colouring in book. Yeah. <laughs> a collage. A collage. I could definitely do a book of collage. <laughs> Okay, so let's take you back to, uh, yeah, we want to talk about uh, user-generated content now. So you were responsible for launching heatworld.com. And uh, I know you share my excitement about the internet and the possibilities, the creative possibilities of working online as opposed to just in print. What I wanted to ask you about was user-generated content and how you feel it fits in relation to content written by professional journalists. I think that uh, user-generated content is... Huge, exciting. For me, I don't care where the contents come from as long as it's good, whether it's created by a professional or someone on the street. Interestingly, uh, uh, the website has fed, I'd say, three or four covers that we did last year of Heat. So people have sent content to us through the website that has been so good that we've actually made covers out of it. So the first picture of Cheryl and Ashley Cole out together after their marriage problems where they looked happy. So a user had seen them in a restaurant holding hands, smiling at each other on a really sunny day and had sent the image to Heat. And when I opened the email, I could not believe my eyes. It was the thing that all the paparazzi had failed to get. A reader, a user had found. And similarly, um, there's this great mobile phone shot of Jordan passed out on a table in a nightclub on Mother's Day in Brighton. You know, again, it would be a shot that a paparazzi would love to have got, but a user got it instead. So Do that, they get paid for those? Absolutely, and paid well for them as well, because, you know, I think that there's a real problem at the moment where, because there is very little work for young journalists, when they do give you something, I think it's really important to credit them properly for it, to give them bylines, to pay them for it, so that it encourages them to do it again. Uh, So I suppose what I'm getting at is that there absolutely is this home for user-generated content, but I think several years need to go by where people can hone their skills and work out, actually, what can I make money from? What is good? What is the public going to engage with? But at the same time, what I love about it is it's really democratic and you don't have to have an agent. It's giving you a platform, a free platform to express yourself and, and show your work. But what is also good because it's democratic is that people if they like it will look at it and if they don't they won't it's like natural selection I suppose the good stuff will rise up and what about the relationship with the readers because obviously everything's much more interactive now and you've got the possibility for comment and blogging and so I mean that is shaping the way publications are producing yeah online yeah absolutely I mean 
I suppose what's interesting is that people absolutely like to comment on stories and share their opinions. And those opinions can very often form what it is that you do and the way that you approach something. On Heat World, we have a panel, which is our top five most read stories. And I would use that quite often to just see what people are reading, what they're engaging with. It's like instant research. It's absolutely brilliant. we do that as well, don't we? Yeah, and it's really often the thing that you don't think it's going to be, you know. Yeah, um, sometimes you can never tell, can you? Comes out of left field, yeah. Camel toes are very popular on Heat World. (laughs) (laughs) Put the word camel toe in a headline. You can guarantee (laughs) it'll be your most read story of the day. (laughs) Nice. Okay. (laughs) So you're the creative director yep, of uh, Lifestyle and Entertainment. Yes, exciting. Uh, it is very exciting. So tell us a bit about your job. And also, I was reading there's uh, Project Tower and Project, yep. what is it? Project Jackpot. Project Jackpot and Project Tower, yes. That's all very cloak and dagger. All very cloak and dagger. I very suppose you can't do any revealing. Can't tell you anything at all about that. <laughs> Nothing? Nothing. Not even a tiny Not bit even of a tiny it. Bit. Well, one of them's called Jackpot. The other right, called thanks. Tower. <laughs> So tell us about your job then. So basically, most publications now are thinking about themselves as brands rather than just a magazine that you produce. So at Bauer, we have got some incredibly strong brands. Heat, Grazia, More, FHM, Closer, Zoo, Q. The great thing about all of those titles is we have really good, close relationships with our readers and they're strong brands as a result of that. So my job is to then take those brands and explore how they can exist on other platforms. Because obviously what you have is this difficulty with younger audiences are completely engaged online, quite rightly, but they ha- don't have the habit of going into news agents. They don't engage with the publication in the way that we do. So my job is to find different ways of engaging them, you know. To uh, reaching them. To reaching them. So the first projects that I'm working on are very much TV-related Because I think what was really interesting was how Susan Boyle uh, online became a global internet sensation. However, without the platform of Britain's Got Talent, she wouldn't have become famous just from being online. Television is a brilliant platform. It still creates the talking points. But I think it's really important that you then have something to experience online as well. The television is you're striking a match. And with online, you're fanning the flames, you know, and making something really huge. I think in the future, television and online is going to merge, obviously, completely, because at the moment, there's still two separate screens that we have in our houses. And eventually, they'll merge into one screen and it it will change the culture again. So thank you very much for coming in, Julian. It's been really good fun. So will you come back? Of course, I'd love to. And tell us more anecdotes. I would would love to. Good. (laughs) Thanks very much. Thank you. And now, from us to you. Intern Kate has joined us. Hello, Kate. Hello. How has your week been then? Really good, yeah. What kind of things have you been up to this week as our intern? Done a lot this week, actually. One of the most interesting was an interview that's for next week with a lady called Debbie Wendes. I won't spoil it, but she basically attached a board to herself and walked up and down her high street to get a job. So, oh, wow. Yeah, something Sounds interesting. I'm going to get to hear that next week. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So tell us about the poster this week. Who have you picked and why? Our poster this week is Arkgrad, who posted in the forum. He is a first-class student with a degree in archaeology and history. And he was posting basically because he wanted to get into museum curating, which there's been quite a few posts recently in the forums about that. Ideally, one day I'd like to end up at somewhere like the British Museum because it's such an acclaimed institution. And obviously that's quite a long way off and I wasn't expecting to go straight into a job like that. 
However, even trying to gain an internship or work experience is proving difficult at the moment. So you ended up posting on the forum, didn't you? How useful did you find the advice that people gave to you? I found it really good, actually. It's nice to know just on a basic level that there's other people out there in the same position as me. And it's also nice to be able to provide different links to different websites and just basically almost to network to ensure that you're covering every possible job website that's out there. So have you acted on any advice that you were given? I'm beginning to look into the possibilities in postgraduate study. Like anything, it's the obvious funding difficulties. So I'm possibly looking to do an archaeology course at UCL next year. And how do you feel about your situation? Because we, um, we had a poster from the site on the podcast recently who was really angry and upset. But you don't sound quite as angry as she did. Some days it is incredibly demoralising and kind of soul-destroying with sometimes your only companion is daytime TV. Whereas other days you feel a bit more hopeful. And I think as time progresses, probably is, the prospects do seem more dismal in that you just feel like you're never, ever going to be able to find anything even with a degree so I'm trying to sort of keep my head up and hopefully something will come along soon. I mean a lot of the people on the website were saying that the career that you want to get into particularly in the museums trade is very difficult and it often depends on the people that you know. Do you Mm. think that's the case or do you think it's more just that there are so many people wanting to do it that it's hard to get internships? No I think it obviously is an incredibly difficult sector to get into and it's very dependent on who you know. So obviously the ability to network could obviously put you in much better prospects. That was ARC grad talking to Kate earlier today. And now just the job. Welcome, Charlie. Hello. So each week you're going to be bringing us the most exciting role on Guardian Jobs. What have you got for us this week? That's right. Well, this week we have a very exciting opportunity from Circus Space. Wow. They run a fantastic course for people wanting to get into into the, the circus arts. And this time they're actually looking for a development manager. Uh, they want people that have experience in, in fundraising, sales or marketing, uh, particularly people that are already working in the arts sector. OK, great. And do they state a salary? Oh, do we yes, know what they're looking for? In fact, they're, they're going to be paying 30k for this. Oh, wow. So it's quite a quite a good senior. Well, it's a senior role, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's a so very need, senior need position. need experience. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Experience very much sort of in, in the art sector. That sounds and, interesting. Uh, yeah, if anyone interested should go to uh, Guardian Jobs to, to look it up. Guardianjobs.co.uk, you mean? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Charlie. My pleasure. On the phone now is Mark Palmer-Edgecombe, who has joined the pod to tell us about an upcoming event on diversity in the workplace. My name's Mark Palmer-Edgecombe, and I'm the uh, director of a diversity consulting firm called ARI Consulting, and we have offices in London and Buenos Aires. Um, Prior to that, I was a global head of diversity for Barclays Group, um, where obviously I specialised in diversity, and a big element of that was around recruitment. And uh, following my departure from Barclays earlier this year, I took on a project with Square Peg Media, who are magazine publishers in the LGBT community, to put on the first ever real uh, LGBT recruitment fair, lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender. And um, I've seen for a couple of years, I've been frustrated when I was at Barclays, that no such fair existed. Um, because I think employers who are really serious about diversity understand that the LGBT area is kind of the last people to the table and it's still the most challenging area of diversity and if you want to attract the best LGBT candidates you need to really put your money where your mouth is and a good way to demonstrate that is actually to have a good quality LGBT recruitment fair so that's what I've been working with Square Peg on and I think that's actually what's going to happen on the 20th of November is a really fantastic fair. 
Are you saying then that people are being discriminated in their application because of their sexuality? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there is still prejudice against um, gay people. And I think, you know, anybody that watched Newsnight and saw Nick Griffin and the outrageous things that he was saying about gays and lesbians would, would know that there is still prejudice. And you know, I'm a gay man myself. And I remember when I was applying for jobs when I left university, I got a number of offers. But the key thing to me was which company was I going to feel most at home in? Where would I be able to be myself and be out? And which culture would be open and inclusive and accepting of me? And I think whilst that was 20 years ago and things have dramatically moved on, it's still a really important issue for any gay or lesbian that's leaving university and looking for their first job. You know, it's a tough enough leaving college and starting a career the last thing you need is to be worrying about can you be out are people going to discriminate against me and what I want to do is put together a place where employers who feel the same and who really are serious about diversity can come together and demonstrate that to the great candidates that we know there are in the lesbian and gay community. Right so um, so explain where the fair is happening when it's happening and uh, if you can tell us a couple of the companies that are taking part. Yeah absolutely it's going to be on the Friday the 20th of November at the Great Connaught Rooms which is in Covent Garden in central London. We have a whole range of companies from city law firms such as Allen & Overy to investment banks like City and Deutsche and Credit Suisse to retail banks like Barclays and Royal Bank of Scotland through to retailers like Asda, Tesco's. We have public sector like the Environment Agency, the Home Office, local authorities, consulting firms such as Ernst & Young. So a really broad range of co- companies in the private and the public sector you know it's a really fantastic opportunity for graduates to come and meet employers not only the best employers but employers who also have jobs and in the current market you know it's been a difficult year for graduate recruitment and these companies have jobs so great opportunity. I was going to say is it uh, open to other people that have graduated uh, four or five years or six or seven years or is it people just finishing university? I see basically it's there's four groups of, of, of people who should come to this fair and I think the first is people who graduated this summer who are still looking for a place, graduates who are going into their final year now who are looking to get in early for a 2010 training scheme place, first and second year graduates who are looking for an internship and that's particularly important in areas like investment banking and law firms and people who've left university in the last couple of years who either didn't go on to a training scheme and would like to do now or who are looking for a job or career change. So very broad audience we're looking at there I think any graduate would be crazy not to come to this fair even if it wasn't a bad year for recruitment because just to get face time with those employers to meet the people who will be making the decisions later down the line about your joining the company is really great because now so much is done online and it's so impersonal this is a, a really fantastic opportunity to meet the people who can make the decisions and what we're also doing to ensure that we get great students there is that we're putting on transport from a number of the key universities so there'll be coaches to bring the students to London or, so they or, can't escape <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, and there were no excuse not to come yeah. and we'll be taking them back and also another kind of draw to come is that there will be enough to show party at the Shadow Lounge, which is a prestigious club in, in Soho. And uh, at that, we have Ben Summersgill, who's the chief executive of Stonewall, will Great. be speaking. And also Angela Eagle, who is the um, minister for pensions. Mm-hmm. Any students that register in advance and come to the show will get a free ticket for that. So 
That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it's going to be a really great event. I think so. I think it'll be a great day and a great night. Well, that's about it. I think you'll agree it's been a jam-packed show this week and we have just enough time to squeeze in what's coming up next week. Kerry, over to you. Okay, next week's Q&As and the forums on November 4th. We'll be talking about mental health in the workplace. So lots of discussion about how we can remove the stigma of mental health history when applying for jobs and also how to promote good mental health and beat stress, that sort of stuff. On November the 5th, we're talking about tourism and hospitality careers. And on November 6th, we're talking about routes into journalism. And so far, we have our journalism expert, Chris Wheel from the NUJ involved in that. Oh, good. That'll be a really good discussion. Yeah, journalism has been really busy section on the forum this week so lots of demand and also tell me about your guest presenter because I'm not going to be there yeah <laughs> yeah you're off on a road trip with a cat and your I brother am. I might not come back so Alex Pressland has kindly agreed to sit in and she's going to be co-presenting next week excellent Many thanks to our delightful guest, Julian Lindley, and our poster, Ark Grad. Thanks also to Mark Palmer-Edgecombe, Charlie Vincent, intern Kate, and of course, Miss Kerry Ann Eustace. Thank you. Don't forget, you can find out more information on everything we've talked about by going to careers.guardian.co.uk. Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. I'm LJ Fulitrani. Thanks for listening.